It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Vice Magazine podcast, your definitive monthly guide to enlightening information. Our theme for May 2017 is Restless Youth. With Donald Trump in the Oval Office and resistance in the air across the globe, we have a lot to cover. So here's our table of contents. Photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom describes how our restless youth cover image gives an old protest photograph new meaning. It originally appeared on the front page of the Ann Arbor News on Thursday, June 19, 1969. In this month's infographic, Haisam Hussein highlights the history of youth activism and protests throughout the globe. Even in the most repressive environments, young people found a way to stand up and resist. Our Freedom of Information Act expert, Jason Leopold, unveils surprising facts from the FBI case on an extreme animal rights group. He called the in again days later, this time arguing with the desk clerk about another item on the menu, rabbit. Journalist Aaron Lake-Smith talks to Chris Carroll about the recent anti-corruption protests in Romania, which have been the largest and most widespread demonstration since the fall of communism. Is this going to keep going? Is it going to peter out? Is it going to complete this process once they bring it through Parliament? And it kind of remains in this like weird limbo. Erica Allen joins broadly staff writer Diana Tourget, Vice News journalist Keegan Hamilton, and Vice.com news editor Matt Taylor in a roundtable discussion on what's at stake when reporting the news. I want to tell a human story about someone, and whoever comes across that story, I want them to care. Finally, David Givens, the equipment manager for Vice on HBO, tells us the story behind an item he picked up at the Freddie Gray protests in Baltimore. This artifact is weathered, spherical, dirty, and fractured. Let's start with the first thing anyone notices when they pick up a magazine, the cover. Here's Elizabeth Renstrom explaining the inspiration behind this issue's photo. Kitron Newscats and Ann Arbor News are the artists behind our May Restless Youth issue. And in the cover, you see an archival photograph of a girl from the 60s endlessly mirrored against a police line. We hope to show with this repetition that maybe we haven't made as much progress as we would have hoped in order to get across the idea that the younger generation is still fighting. It originally appeared on the front page of the Ann Arbor News on Thursday, June 19, 1969, with a caption reading, Girl Watches Riot Police Lining South University Avenue. Later, the Bentley Historical Library cataloged the photo, and with a lot of back and forth, gaining permission to put it on the cover wasn't easy. But we felt we had to have it. I went through many rounds of harassing the newspaper on Facebook until we reached the glorious moment where someone had the answers for us. As Kit said, the reflective and repetitive aspect of the image 
the back of the girl juxtaposed with a seemingly endless army of faceless officers, invokes a kind of claustrophobia. We think, in a way, it represents our current state. We've been backed into a corner, and there's no one else to turn to except ourselves, our generation. And I think that's a perfect synopsis of like how we found this cover image and how it applies to the rest of the material inside of the issue. In Hassan Hussein's infographics, he connects the dots between facts and world events. Here he is explaining the history of youth in revolt. When the Arab Spring uprising started in Tunisia, it was propelled in good part by the young people of that country, who were angry at their government, which was very repressive at the time. They made use of social media and turned to Facebook and Twitter to help them organize and start protesting. These online tools really opened a lot of doors for them, and it made it much easier to connect with others and share information. This formula of activism through social media spread to neighboring Arab countries, and it's widely used today all over the world. About a quarter of the world's population is made up of young people, and for this stat, we define young people as 10 to 24 year olds. And that's the highest ratio on record. It's a big group with a big voice. Young people have long organized to stand up for causes. They're the ones who often bring the passion and the energy that's needed to spark significant change. And today, with our state of constant digital connectedness, they're even more pivotal and more active than before. But of course, you don't need social media to rally young people. Back in the 13th century, there was a children's crusade in Europe. As the story goes, a boy there claimed to have been visited by Jesus, and Jesus told him to lead a crusade to convert Muslims to Christianity. He went around telling people this and somehow gathered 30,000 other kids. They all marched towards the Mediterranean Sea where they believed it would part for them so they could continue on to Jerusalem. The sea did not part for them. Instead, a couple of merchants offered free passage on ships that would sail the Crusaders across. But it didn't quite go down like that. A lot of the kids were taken to Tunisia and sold into slavery, and a lot of others died in shipwrecks. A more recent and ultimately more successful children's crusade took place in Alabama in 1963, when school kids in Birmingham left their classrooms to join the civil rights marches. And in South Africa, a little over 10 years later, students in the Soweto township of Johannesburg did something similar to protest the introduction of Afrikaans, the language of their oppressors, as the proposed language for education. In both cases, the police response was heavy-handed, with South African police going so far as shooting live ammunition at the students, killing some. Even in the most repressive environments, young people found a way to stand up and resist. A small group of students in Nazi Germany, calling themselves the White Rose Group, gathered regularly in secret to print anti-Nazi leaflets and paint resistance graffiti all over Munich. They were ultimately discovered and arrested, and just four days later, they were found guilty and unfortunately executed by guillotine. Thankfully, that sort of brutal response to youth activism is less common today. And we've started to recognize and celebrate our young leaders with things like the recently formed UN Envoy on Youth, which brings voices of young people into the United Nations system to advocate for the world's youth. When they organize, young people get things done. And now with the power of social media at their fingertips, they're increasingly able to make their voices heard. To see our latest infographic on youth activism, pick up our print issue or find it online at vice.com magazine. This has been Haisam Hussein for Vice. 
The Inn at Little Washington might sound like the title of a Hitchcock movie, but it's the name of a real establishment. Jason Leopold, our resident Freedom of Information Act expert, breaks down a series of threatening phone calls directed at the Inn and the tactics the FBI used to try and crack the case. In December of 2012, two front desk clerks from this Washington, Virginia establishment received some strange and threatening phone calls. All hell will be unleashed, the mail caller said in one, continuing with, quote, We are watching you. This mysterious caller had one demand, that the restaurant stop serving foie gras, or duck liver, that is fattened by force-feeding the bird. He called the inn again days later, this time arguing with the desk clerk about another item on the menu, rabbit. He said that if the inn failed to stop serving rabbit, along with his other requests, the group he worked with would spray paint the hotel red and burn it down. I obtained 44 pages of FBI documents surrounding these calls through a Freedom of Information Act request. From the information in these documents, I can tell you that the caller was a representative of the Animal Liberation Front, also known as ALF. ALF is a 40-year-old organization that the FBI has designated a terrorist group. ALF is a leaderless activist movement, and the FBI has been keeping tabs on it for decades. In fact, John E. Lewis, a deputy assistant director at the FBI, has stated that ALF and ELF, the Earth Liberation Front, have become, quote, the most active criminal extremist elements in the United States. With that in mind, here are three takeaways from these files which detailed the incident at the inn at Little Washington, and how the FBI's counterterrorism division handled the threatening phone calls made by animal activist groups. All right, so on this page, you'll notice the word FIG, F-I-G, in all caps. You can see this online or in the magazine, but FIG stands for Field Intelligence Group. It's a working group within the Bureau that, according to its website, takes, quote, raw information from local cases and makes big picture sense of it. There is one fig for each of the Bureau's field offices, and this document was directed to them. You can see here that this file was put together to request FBI SSA, or Supervisory Special Agent, to open a grand jury subfile. The document notes that the federal prosecutor assigned to the case agreed to prosecute the caller if the FBI could identify and obtain evidence that he committed a crime. Okay, and here's where it gets interesting. This page documents the service of a grand jury subpoena to unknown subjects by the SA, or special agent, and reveals some rare details about the FBI's collection of phone data from targeted numbers as it pertains to the alleged threatening phone calls. And it refers to a legal instrument authorizing the FBI to collect such information from various phone carriers. That likely means that the FBI obtained all the phone numbers that called the in within a certain date range in order to locate ALF members. 
While the file outlines a two-step plan that the FBI used to prevent overcollection, the legal instrument set to safeguard against the overcollection is not specified. So it's unknown if the FBI ever caught the ALF member behind the threatening calls. No one has reported this incident. Both the FBI and the spokesperson for the Inn at Little Washington have not responded to my request for comments. But foie gras is still on the menu. For Vice Magazine, I'm Jason Leopold. This year, Romania experienced the largest street demonstration since the fall of communism in 1989. Triggered by the rise of pervasive corruption within the Romanian system, journalist Aaron Lake-Smith traveled to the country to investigate. Here's Aaron on what went down. What were you doing in Romania? Romania has had some of the biggest protests since the fall of communism this winter. And they're led by young people, urban young people, not entirely with clear concrete policy goals or political goals. They're kind of just, you know, they're sick of corruption. They're sick of the way things are there that have basically got set up after the fall of communism. You had kind of these mini oligarchs. You had these communist nomenclatura that kind of took hold the political system and said, we're a democracy now, but we're not really a democracy. Real democracy only came to Romania in like 2002, you know, and went ahead with the accession of the European Union. So I was there covering these huge protests, which almost looked like they might go in a kind of Euromaidan direction and topple the government. They were protesting against corruption and an emergency decree that the top party leader of the governing party established basically to, like, excuse abuse of power corruption charges to basically get himself and a lot of his people off the hook. And this was kind of like the last straw for people who've been protesting for years and years, and they just came out in mass and kind of looked like they were going to take down the government. The government backed down on the decree. They withdrew it. They said, okay, that was undemocratic. We'll take it to parliament. We'll do it the right way or whatever. And so then the people, when I got there, they were kind of confused and lost. They were a little bit like, okay, well, is this going to keep going? Is it going to peter out? Is it going to complete this process once they bring it through parliament? And it kind of remains in this like weird limbo. Would you say there was an average protester? Like, were they from a certain age range? Did they seem to have a certain amount of money? Were they mainly urban people? Or were they from the countryside? The average protester was 25 to 40, middle class, worked in IT or some other kind of Western-leaning enterprise. There were older people, but mostly kind of people who are part of the opposition party, which is National Liberal Party, or otherwise people who would say, I'm apolitical, I just want honest government. You know, they're young people. A lot of the protesters, you know, they might work for, some work for nonprofits. The wages are so low there that one thing you can do to be treated well is just like work for like a Western corporation where like, I mean, they, they told me that where it's kind of like, at least at a Western corporation, it may be whatever, at least will be paid well and kind of treated in like a proper corporate structure. So that's kind of like a refuge for young people there who feel like 
the other job prospects are grim and heavily politicized and not much protection. And so a lot of people that worked for like foreign companies and stuff. So, you know, it it kind of the counter accusation, of course, from the government and from the pro-government people who were more rural was this is uh, foreign. This is Soros funded. These are young people deluded by kind of like Western ideology and so that was the response, which it's it's hard to know chicken or egg, but it's this clash of ways of doing things. Do you think there's something to the response from the more rural people? I was taken aback by how similar the political landscape was to here, where it's like rural, more poor people who want social protection, and they're a little bit more nationalistic, kind of being put down by these more urban people who have more socially liberal progressive policies kind of this cultural clash but also like an economic clash where the urban people have great politics socially but there's a huge divide between the urban and rural classes and um, one doesn't really care about the other I mean I wouldn't say like the urban people are extremely preoccupied with the plight of the rural poor people, it's kind of like, oh, those are backwards, you know, they're backwards rednecks, they're socially conservative, they're, you know, live in shacks or toothless, you know, it's kind of this clash that was happening and playing out and one side happened to be a little of the government, the other side was like pushing for change, you know, mostly on the level of finishing the democratic project in a way of basically saying we want true democracy we want what we were promised you know communism collapsed what do we get out of this we want it to be free and just and not riven with corruption and want to have a free market start business you know do stuff so it was interesting it was it was eerie to be there like right after trump got elected and be like on the one hand what am i doing here but on the other hand this is like a weird mirror of home. You talked about an inversion earlier. There was a strange inversion going on in protests that you saw there relative to what was going on here. There, the Social Democratic Party is the ruling party, the party, you know, Social Democratic in name only. They're a very conservative party, but they do have some good economic policy. They promise pension. They're kind of theoretically for a welfare state for poor people, a safety net. And so you had all these hundreds of thousands of young people attacking this social democratic party and being like, yeah, it's all, you know, and basically saying they're all liars and it doesn't matter. They're not real social democrats, but not really having an alternative other than kind of a little bit more free market, Western, you know, NATO, Western leaning ideas. And yeah, it was a little bit, I mean, I would say I'm a left person. It was a little bit uncomfortable at times, you know, because for them it's, the EU, the economically free market, socially liberal things like the dream. It's like what they've wanted. They've so badly wanted to like be a real part of Europe and be incorporated into this structure and be a normal European country. And they've struggled against um, corruption and all the and the baggage that comes with like decades under this brutal communist state. I mean, they're just like trying to get to where, you know, a normal quote unquote European country is and yeah the governing party that's constantly accused of corruption and being oligarchic kind of crony 
fake social democratic are a little bit, you know, more economically, you know, progressive in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I mean, are, how how corrupt are they? I mean, are is there something to the, the accusations from those younger, more neoliberal? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call them neoliberal. I mean, that, that's probably unfair. And that's, it depends. It was such a wide swath. There were people that were like far left and, you know, it was just kind of like the main thrust of it was socially liberal, free market kind of urban um, demographic. But uh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they definitely do have a point. Remain has had huge issues with corruption. Bribery is extremely common in the hospital system and the public administration. Contracts are doled out on a kind of back padding, you know, almost mafioso kind of structure. The politics are intertwined with like companies. You know, in the rural areas, you might have someone running a company that belongs to this party and they want everyone at the company to be part of that party as well and all the rich people in the area are also part of that party they talk about captive towns and captive cities and that's what they mean is that after the fall of communism you know these people stepped in these kind of um former uh former communist nomenclature people you know different little oligarchs took hold and the party of choice came to be the PSD, the Social Democratic Party, and it didn't diversify the economic and political structures didn't become, you know, <laughs> they didn't blossom into, a, you know, a million democratic flowers. It kind of just, you had people that took hold and kept, kept hold of political and economic and enterprises and stuff, so. It sounds like in size, these protests were comparable to the 1989 protests. They were quite large and that they went on for a long time. But, like, do you think ultimately they will achieve anything on par with what with those protests? I mean, obviously that protest ended with the death of Ceausescu, so, like, it hasn't gone violent. But, I mean, do you think that there will be some kind of significant change? Or does it seem as if they've just, like, now that the protests have petered out, they're kind of settling back into business as usual a little bit? It, it's relevant. It's substantial. It's kind of, I mean, you're seeing this all over the world where you have a revolution, a country turns to democracy, and then down the line they start to wonder, did we really get the democracy we were pushing for? And they start to look around and say, well, this isn't what our parents fought for, and they want the completion of the revolution. I think that's kind of what they're pushing for there is completion of a democratic process and to like kind of finish the job you know you're seeing this in Egypt too it's like oh we have a revolution another revolution and you get a military general in power you know you have different situations all over the place and this is just another situation where I think they're pushing to finish the job and whether it's going to achieve anything I mean I think yeah it was again I was struck there by how pure their democratic ideals were they really believed like here you know i had to constantly kind of say well you know like the united states and europe is not perfect but you know out in eastern europe they might get the impression that everything's good our systems are perfectly functioning i mean after trump you know the nepotism of trump the taxes the hotel down the street from the white house i mean you do have serious corruption here as well it's kind of inspiring because they believe in actual democracy. I think maybe here we're a little bit jaded about certain things. Yep. You know? <laughs> it's yep. not, we're not quite in the streets every time, uh, you know, there's like a corruption. I think people have concerns, but it's not quite the same level of um, mass engagement. So I think in the end, it will 
lead to something. It's not. It's definitely not over. The protesters picking up steam again. It's really kind of like these two forces in society waiting for each other to make moves and playing off it. I think the real question to things it it doesn't get it doesn't become like a wild Ukrainian revolution unless violent accidents start happening. So I think up until this point it's all it's very it's very peaceful, you know, it's very you know, each side is protesting, each side's talking in the newspapers and the public dialogue. So everything is going along normally, but it's kind of in a precarious state as a country. I mean, probably more, I mean, more so than we are, I think. You know, yeah. More, more divided, more, uh, more of a powder keg. The spirit of activism has filtered into the mainstream, and journalists often find themselves trying to balance fair and even reporting with reporting that has more of a direct and pointed focus. Erica Allen joined Broadly Staff writer Diana Tourget. I don't know what any of these labels need to mean anyway, because I just believe in my work. Vice News journalist Keegan Hamilton. Activism, a lot of times, will sometimes try to ignore inconvenient facts. And Vice.com's news editor, Matt Taylor. There are so many publications now, some of which do great work, that clearly are not trying to bridge the gap, and they're okay with it. To discuss how their reporting styles have changed over the years and what's at stake when reporting the news. Is objective reporting still a thing in a time where everyone's on social media sharing their thoughts constantly when opinion journalism seems to really be favored on the internet at least. My own sort of political awakening and I guess the extent to which I started to get interested in journalism was in 2006 around when the Democrats in the Bush administration took back Congress and there was a big debate back then on the left and on a lot of the blogs that I think are maybe not quite as relevant anymore as they were then about the press and I think the sort of foil you would often hear or read was this guy, David Broder, who wrote for the Washington Post, who was this sort of old school political reporter who was associated with this, on the one hand, on the other hand, approach that we saw a lot in big newspapers. We still see a lot of big newspapers and the Associated Press and wire services. And people were pissed about it. I mean, there was a lot of anger about the way the Bush administration was framed to the public. And I think that was sort of the ethos in which I started to think a lot about politics and activism. So I personally always felt the two had to be connected in some fashion, that it would be not just personally stifling, but maybe bad for journalism or at least bad for the causes I cared about to try to separate them. That doesn't mean that you don't make an effort in your journalism to characterize everyone and everything you talk about with a certain amount of integrity and accuracy. But I think I always had a sort of antagonistic approach to old school concepts of down the line journalism. And I pulled back a little bit from that. Blogs are not quite as important into the national dialogue as they once were. Uh, Twitter, I maybe has overtaken them in that respect. And I certainly have tried as I've matured and been in journalism for a longer time to take on a lot of the principles about objectivity and and, the, and its importance. But I, I always, I guess, have, have gone in. I went in to the process of learning about journalism, thinking opinion and advocacy had to be part of what we were doing. Activism, a lot of times, will sometimes try to ignore inconvenient facts 
where journalism's role is to cover activism, yet also point out that it might not be exactly as the activists seem it is. So I don't know, I can't think of an example offhand, but there's a lot of times when people are advocating for a certain policy or some sort of change when they're not wholly right. You might agree with them and think that that change is worthy, but there is oftentimes something to be said for the flip side. That's not necessarily advocating false equivalency in the old school, on one hand, on the other hand, approach. I think we've moved past that, especially for certain issues like climate change, where, you know, somebody says, oh, this climate change isn't real. You know, 99% of the scientists say it is. You don't need to give that side of the argument necessarily, although we do see in some old school publications that's still happening. And I think we're moving beyond that gradually. But to me, that's the difference is you can cover activism without being 100% an activist. I've always sort of resented the expectation that I need to be an activist because as a trans person, it's sort of, I think maybe any member of a marginalized group, when you begin your professional work, it's expected that you're speaking on behalf of a population or that your work needs to be... Like, I've always... For a long time in the beginning of my career, especially, I resented it so much that I wanted to not be defined as an activist ever. And I see people define me as an activist a lot um, as my readers. And whenever I do, I'm like, I get angry because I don't want to be seen as an activist. I want to be seen as a journalist. I don't care that much at this point about that because I don't know what any of these labels need to mean anyway because I just believe in my work. But... I think that everyone silos themselves off to a certain degree into their belief systems. And there are certain people in the United States who have, by virtue of their upbringing and personal identity, not had the privilege of being siloed off in that way, in the sense that because certain populations in this country have suffered oppression at the hands of others, you sort of see through the facade of all things being equal and you recognize that there are systems in place in the United States that prevent equality from truly going into effect because you've seen it firsthand. And if you grow up as someone who is part of a certain sect of the community that isn't forced to confront these different systems of inequality, then it's much more difficult for you to perceive what is being spoken about by other groups because you haven't been forced to see it. You've had the privilege not to have seen it. And I think that's what Black Lives Matter has talked a lot about. I think that's what the transgender movement is largely trying to talk about. I think the modern day feminism, you know, movement is trying to talk about this. It's the idea of why would men be in charge of deciding uh, reproductive rights? You know, why would men be the majority to rule over how women have autonomy over their body. It doesn't make sense. I can't tell someone I'm purely objective. I have to admit that to a degree, everyone is subjective. Everyone has a subjective lens on their experience. Even if you can acknowledge that sometimes your stories may alienate some readers? Are there 
pains that you take to try to access those readers who have the lens that might turn them off. I want to tell a human story about someone, and whoever comes across that story, I want them to care. For example, for this issue of the magazine, I wrote a profile of Justina Mora, who's a young undocumented immigrant. And I don't think you can find an issue that is more polarized right now in this country than immigration. You go online, you read a lot of stories about immigration, anything that has comments, and it's just knee-jerk reactions of even the most sympathetic characters are not sympathetic to some people. They're just illegals, quote-unquote. And for this story, I tried to profile him and make him a human being and tell his story And he has perhaps the most sympathetic story that you can find. Like his family fled domestic abuse. He's lived in this country without violating any laws for almost his entire life. He's an incredible academic achiever, a brilliant computer programmer. And I think hopefully somebody who's anti-immigration would read that story and be like, all right, maybe this kid is the exception. Like I can, all right, he can stay. But then you get to the end of the piece and he says you know, we shouldn't be making that distinction at all. Like, I don't want to be the one who's the exception. Like, if you're going to let me stay, you have to let everybody, even the non-valedictorians, stay. So when I wrote that piece, I set out to say, all right, I'm going to tell the story of this this guy who's a remarkable human being, who is the exception to a lot of people's rules. But at the end, I'm going to let anybody who's stuck with the piece that long know that Maybe they should think twice and say, it's not just this guy, it's the 11 million undocumented people in this country. There are so many publications now, some of which do great work, that clearly are not trying to bridge the gap, and they're okay with it. They do objective journalism, they report the facts, they don't, they don't concoct things, but they're not interested in, uh, in convincing people that illegal immigration is, is okay. They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're talking to a crowd that agrees with them on almost every point. Uh, I've often personally done journalism vaguely in that ballpark, which is to say I'm speaking to people on the left who are divided between two candidates, but we agree on almost everything. We're arguing about a really narrow slice of what's going on in the world because that just seemed more important or pressing to me at the time. But obviously the broader tradition of American journalism and certainly magazine writing still to a large extent is you know nothing about this person that I'm profiling or this, this situation I'm describing and I'm going to assume you know nothing and just present it to you from square one. I think we're still kind of figuring out which is more useful or which is more appropriate to this time. I think a lot of what that comes down to is, you know, are you going to tell readers what to think or are you going to let readers decide what to think? And history has often shown us that people are more apt to eventually agree with you if you let them come to that conclusion on your own. Certainly what facts you choose to include and how you describe situations can help shape what that decision is. But I think the goal in my work is often to put that out there and then let someone draw their own conclusion from it. And in you know the story, Justino's story, somebody might say, oh, he crossed the border illegally when he was a kid, fine, that's it. But other people might take the whole of that situation and maybe change their mind. Things have become so divisive that I think it's also hard when people have tuned out, even with when you're showing and not telling. It's hard to get them to even look at what you're trying to show them. I, th- I mean, I think it's essential that we sort of communicate across, right? Like, if we don't do that, then we're going to continue the division. 
part of the reason for doing that is because the division is so conceptual. It's real in the sense that there are certain communities in this country that have one viewpoint and aren't going to even give credence to another, right? But within those communities, there is so much diversity itself. And whether or not that siloed off community recognizes that is irrelevant to the fact that it's true. So if I'm a journalist who only cares, if I I don't only care about transgender subject matter, but if I were, I would have to accept that my work is most valuable if I can tell the truth to the people who need it the most, right? And so there are people who don't want to consume the stories that I'm telling who don't realize that their children are transgender or that their family members are transgender or their siblings or extended family are transgender or that even within themselves they are entangled by notions of gender that have imprisoned them in a sense within a social construct. Someone today might think that a counter-argument like to transgender rights deserves to be heard, and maybe it does, but I think that history will look back and, and see that what we're fighting for today is a civil rights movement for people who have been oppressed and erased for all of American history. And so it is not my belief that I need to give editorial space to the voice of opposition in a way that's trying to give value to what they're saying if I don't also counterbalance what they're saying with the facts as I know it, which is that they're wrong. And so... So objectivity, you know, someone can come to me and be like, you're, you're not objective, right? But I'm, there's a certain point that I'm willing to say, no, I, I believe that my duty is to find the truth, and I believe I found it. Vice employees are constantly flying across the globe covering stories that enlighten, warn, and maybe even inspire. When they come back, they often bring a part of their travels with them, little artifacts they picked up along the way. This month's artifact belongs to David Givens. Here's his story. It's been a while. This was back in April of 2015 when I was a production assistant for Vice on HBO. It was around like 8 p.m. and I was getting ready to go home. And the Baltimore riots had just happened, I guess, the night before. So all day, the executive producers and the higher-ups were trying to figure out what to do, when should we go, is it worth it, is there a story there, etc. And I was listening and, you know, very curious, obviously, because um, I'm a young African-American man. So I got tapped on the shoulder as I was going home. And I've never been on a shoot before, you know, and my EP just said, Givens, do you want to go to Baltimore? And I said, hell yeah. And he said, great, you got 45 minutes. First night was crazy. We didn't find much, but at one point, a fire ambulance rushed by us, and we just looked at each other, and we were like, maybe we should just follow it. (laughs) So here we were, chasing after a fire truck in Baltimore, and eventually it led us to a giant building that was burning. It must have went a block or two long. You started to see stores that were looted and I don't know, I maybe went to sleep at like, you know, late, 5 a.m. 
So the next day was a beautiful experience because everyone, all shades, different types of people were peacefully protesting in the intersection, which is, I guess, the Martin Luther King Boulevard. It wasn't what I was expecting, but there was a lot of media there, and it did feel a little, a little weird. It was that feeling of, we're doing important work here and we're covering this, but it did feel like we were exploiting, especially because my skin color was the same color as the people we were covering. It helped that I was black and that we had a, uh, another crew member or two who was, who was black, even though the rest of the crew was white, because it just gave us a little, a little bit of street cred that was needed, because there were some crews out there that were all white and people didn't like them. Quite frankly, some people didn't like me and it, it felt difficult at times, but I knew that we were doing important work. So at nighttime, shit started to go down and it started to get a little hairy. And that's when you knew that it was gonna flare up a little bit. And we were working on getting an important beat, which was interviewing Freddie Gray's best friend. And someone came uh, to us, one of our fixers, and he said, shit's going crazy in the square. I basically begged my producer, Matt, if I can break off and go get some B-roll of the action of the National Guard and the police basically spraying the crowd with tear gas and all that stuff. I ran off, I got some good B-roll and I was in the thick of it. At one point in the night, the cops were spraying tear gas and rubber bullets and one zinc by me and uh, I was able to pick it up on the ground. So the funny thing about the bullet, I actually have it right now, let me take it out. It's, I didn't, I remember when I picked it up, I didn't, cause I obviously I heard it, but when I picked this up, I didn't exactly know what it was cause it doesn't look like a rubber bullet like you would think. It's actually sort of spherical and it has, I guess, a hard shell sphere that is now cracked inside of it and it's rubber. So I think when it when it projects from the gun, it breaks. I've never showed it to anyone. I don't even know that I showed my mom, honestly, until the article came out. It was just private, I just held on to it. I don't even know if I told the producer or anyone about it. It's not exactly a token of of pride or gives me warm warm feelings inside. It's definitely a reminder and it's sentimental. I still have it on my counter at home. And I look at it and it reminds me of where I started, where I came from, but the importance of being an African-American filmmaker and uh, journalist and making sure people like us are represented, you know, out here. The Vice Magazine podcast is a production of Vice Media. This issue is produced and edited by Tim Barnes with incredible production assistance from our intern, Shamika Lywood. For more info on the podcast or how to subscribe to the magazine, visit vice.com and be sure to leave a review for the Vice Magazine podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast app that you use. I'm Ellis Jones, and I'd like to give a special thanks to all the voices that you heard on this episode. Elizabeth Renstrom, Hassan Hussein, Jason Leopold, Chris Carroll, Aaron Lake-Smith, Erica Allen, Diana Torget, Keegan Hamilton, Matt Taylor, and David Gibbons. We'll be back next month with our June issue.